You can take your Bibles this morning, open them with me to Romans chapter 9. This morning, we'll be continuing our study of the most debated section in the Bible. Romans chapter 9 through 11. Since it has been two Sundays since we were last in this section, in that time our life changed. We had Elijah, that was what was going on. You heard him this morning. Uh, but So the last two weeks we haven't been in Romans. So since we're coming back to it, I thought it'd be good to start with a quick review of what we've seen so far in Romans 9 through 11. The first thing, the section, is both difficult and debated. Second, the key to studying this section is to start with the right questions. Like what? Well, questions like the what question. What is Romans 9 through 11 about? The answer, in one word, Israel. Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel. If you want to remember how, to, how it breaks down, Romans 9 is primarily about Israel in the past. Romans 10 is about Israel in the present. Romans 11 is about Israel in the future. Question number two, the why question. Why did Paul write these chapters? Lots of reasons, but we focused on three. One, Paul wrote these chapters to defend his own love for his Jewish friends and family. He spent all his time with Gentiles. People thought he was maybe a sellout to the Jewish people. He writes these chapters to defend his own heart, his own love for his people. Two, Paul wrote these chapters to answer the question everyone in his day would have been asking, but few of us ever think to ask. <clears throat> question like, why is it that most Jewish people reject what Paul says? And why is it that the only people who seem to believe what Paul says about the Jewish Messiah and about the Jewish scriptures are actually Gentiles. How is that? Why is that? And then third, and most importantly, Paul wrote these chapters to defend the faithfulness of God. After all, what was happening to the majority of ethnic Jewish people in Paul's day? Same as in our day. Most of them were cut off from God's blessings because they had completely rejected their own Messiah. And we think about it, doesn't that mean that God's promises in the Old Testament have failed? This is the most important question for us to wrestle with. Why? Because if God has not been faithful to what he promised in the past, why would you expect him to be faithful to what he promises to you about the future? And so what Paul sets out to do, I think more than anything else in Romans 9 through 11, is he sets out to defend the faithfulness of God. Now I want to take a look at the first couple of verses. This is what we looked at the last time we were in Romans 9. See Romans 9 verse 1? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. <clears throat> My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, if, if you look back at chapter 8 at the end, everything's awesome. It's all really good. And you say, how could Paul say this? How could he feel this? Why would he feel this way? The initial answer to that is in the next verse, Romans 9, verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What we learn as soon as we enter Romans 9, what we learn about Paul, is that no matter where he goes, no matter how much fruit he gets among the Gentiles, his Jewish brothers and sisters are never far from his mind. 
And whenever he thinks about them, about their current condition separated from Jesus or their final destiny, it causes him constant sorrow, anguish in his heart, a pain that he carries with him wherever he goes. Now, who exactly are these people that he cares so much about? Verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. That is to say, to them belong Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the heroes of the faith. See, there has never been a more privileged people in the history of the human race. But Paul's not finished yet because he hasn't gotten to the best privilege of all. Look at verse 5 again. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all things, blessed forever. Amen. That's the greatest privilege of all. Not only did God adopt the Jewish people to be his people, God himself became one of these people. The Son of God became a human being. But not just any human being. The Son of God became a Jew. These people saw God's glory on the mountain at Sinai, in the wilderness, in the pillar of cloud and the fire. They saw God's glory in the tent and then in the temple. But then, last of all, above all, they saw God's glory in the face of his own son, Jesus. There has never been a more privileged people in history. But what's the problem? Why does Paul feel such pain every time he thinks about his Jewish friends, Jesus' own people, his own people? It's because even though the Messiah himself came from them, came to them, came for them, they just did not want him. Not the way that he came. Not the way that he lived. And definitely not the way that he died. In spite of all their privileges, the vast majority of Jewish people from Paul's day to our day are cut off from their own Messiah. And so no matter what success Paul has in his ministry of the gospel among Gentiles, there's a constant sorrow that he just can't get over. That's what's in the first five verses. That's what we looked at last time. But those verses lead us into the heart of Romans 9 through 11. What I think is the main claim of the entire section. Romans 9, verse 6, starting our text for today. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed. Even though the vast majority of Paul's own people have rejected their own Messiah, this does not mean that God's promises have failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. The question for us today is why not? Or how do you know that? Let's see what Paul has to say. Look at verse 6 again. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, many of us probably hear that and think that sounds pretty cool, but like, what does that, what does that actually mean? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. <clears throat> we got to think about this, okay? Again, just remember the big problem in Paul's day is that the vast majority of ethnic Israelites aren't getting God's blessings. Instead, they're under God's curse because they've rejected God's Son. This is a problem, right? It raises questions about whether God somehow failed to do what he promised in the Old Testament. 
doesn't seem to fit with the Old Testament, does it, that like most Jewish people are under God's curse and not getting his blessings? I mean, does this fit? So what does Paul claim? He says, it's, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? He gives this interesting answer because he says, it's because not all who are descended from Israel really belonged to Israel. Or as you might read in another translation, it's, it's because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, what do you think Paul is saying? What is he getting at? Well, first, you can, you can tell that he's creating two groups there. I mean, you see that, right? He's talking about two Israels, if you will, right? And what is he saying about those two Israels? It is possible to be from Israel and still not belong to Israel. Or put another way, it's possible to be an ethnic Israelite and not be a true Israelite. Okay, but what does that mean? Right, like, what is he saying? Right, what he's getting at is that simply being an ethnic Israelite does not guarantee you God's promised blessings. God never actually guaranteed that. Think about this. There's, there's two Israels in the text. First refers to all ethnic Israelites. Whereas the text says all those who are descended from Israel. Then there's a second Israel. And it's a smaller Israel. The Israel that gets all of God's promised blessings. And what's Paul saying? He's, say, he's simply saying that belonging to the first Israel doesn't mean you automatically belong to the second Israel. Those two Israels, if you will, are related, but they're not identical. Or as I said earlier, simply being an ethnic Israelite doesn't guarantee you're going to get all of God's covenant blessings because God never promised that in the Old Testament. In fact, here's the, here's the key point. If you think that God actually guaranteed all of his blessings to every ethnic Israelite, then what would you have to conclude? you would have to conclude that the word of God has failed. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? Because not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. Or put another way, God never guaranteed his covenant blessings to every ethnic Israelite. And once you start to think about that, you realize Paul has spent a lot of time in this letter already talking about that. He spent the entire chapter of Romans 2 and some of Romans 3 talking about that. Do you remember that? How he argued at length that just having the law of Moses, for example, isn't enough to spare you from God's judgment. Or having the physical sign of circumcision, the sign that you're one of Abraham's children, is not enough to spare you. And do you remember what he says at the very end of Romans 2? I think this will help you. At the very end of Romans 2, Paul says this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one on the outside. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one on the inside. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Done by the Spirit of God, not by the letter. What will matter in the end is not whether you're a Jew on the outside. 
What will matter to God is if you're a Jew on the inside. What will matter in the end is not whether you had an external sign done to you. It's whether God himself has done a miracle in you. What will matter is not your ethnicity or whether you can claim Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob as an ancestor. All that will matter to God is whether you walked in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God's promises haven't failed if you actually understand what God promised. And God never guaranteed all of his covenant blessings to every single ethnic Israelite. That's, a cru- that's the crucial thing Paul's saying. Now, it's one thing for Paul to say that, but is what he's saying actually supported in the Old Testament? That's the key question moving forward. Is that in the Old Testament? So it's story time for Paul. He's got two stories he wants to tell to highlight this one big idea, that physical connection to a faithful person is not and has never been enough. Look at verse 7. Story number 1. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now that is the first story that Paul wants to tell. What story is that? Our first answer is probably that is the story of Isaac. And that is correct, but that's only part of the answer. Now before we go further, you may have gotten a handout today. <clears throat> Half-page handout. If you didn't, you can put your hand up and we'll get, you, we'll get you some. I think most people got them on the way in. Okay. This, this handout here, I'm giving it out today because there is a tough translation question in verse 7. Okay? So that verse 7 could be taken in two different ways. And I want to I take a look at this, okay? So what, what you have there at the beginning is, is the ESV. Right? So just look at verse 7 specifically. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All right, now, just taking that, you look at that, you can see there are two groups in this verse, too, right? The children of Abraham and the offspring, or seed of Abraham. You see that? Not all are children because they're offspring. Here's my question. In that translation, which group is the better one to be in? Now, granted, this might be stre- this might like stretch your mind to think about this. Okay, so you can drink coffee if you need to. I think what is the answer? Okay, in the ESV, which group is the smaller, better group to be in? Not all are children because they're offspring. The answer is the smaller group is the children in the text. In other words, you could be Abraham's offspring but still not be Abraham's children. Not all are his children simply because they're his offspring. That is one way to translate this text. But this is one of those rare places where the very same line could be translated very differently. Okay? 
That's why I put another translation here. Now, this is similar to the CSB, so I'm not like the only one who sees this, but, but it, this is my own translation here, hence the BBV, right? The, so take a look at verse 7 in that second translation. See if you can tell the difference, okay? Nor is it that all the children of Abraham are his seed or offspring. Okay. Now, again, you might have to think hard to catch the difference there. But can you see it? There are still two groups, but which one is the smaller, better group to be in? In that translation, it's clearly better to be Abraham's seed or offspring. That's how I would take this text, and that's going to help us to understand the next lines better and why Paul says what he says about Isaac. Okay? So look back at the, for right now, just look at the BBV. Okay? So start in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor is it that all the children of Abraham are his seed. But in Isaac your seed will be called. That is, it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. You see it throughout the verses. What you really want to be is Abraham's seed or offspring. So first Paul says, not all those descended from Israel are Israel. And now he adds, not all the children of Abraham are really Abraham's seed. In other words, it's possible to be one of Abraham's physical children, but still not be the seed of Abraham who gets the promises and the blessings. But again, we have to ask, does the Old Testament actually teach that? And the answer is, yes, it does. And you say, where? Paul just told you where it says that in the Old Testament. What does he point to? He points to Genesis, to a story about whom? About Isaac. He says, nor is it that all the children of Abraham are his seed. Rather, in Isaac, your seed will be called. Now that quotation, you know where that's from? Genesis chapter 21. We read this earlier today. Verse 12. We read that story earlier this morning for our Old Testament reading. It's a story about Abraham's son, Isaac. But here's the thing. Is that story only about Isaac? Do you remember me reading it? Is it only about Isaac? No. It, you might even say it's not even primarily about Isaac. It is about Isaac, but it's, it's equally as much about what other person? Ishmael. The story is just as much about Abraham's other son, Ishmael. Now, if you're not very, very familiar with that story, because we just read a chapter of it, I'll just fill you in briefly. Like, to start with, Abraham and Sarah had been promised a son by God, promised offspring, seed, but they were really, really old, right? And Sarah was barren. So after years and years of not being able to have a child, they developed a plan, a plan to help God out. Sarah gave her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham so that Abraham could have a child with Hagar for Sarah. This was probably common in their day. And do you know what happened? It worked. Abraham did have a son with Hagar, and, and that son was called Ishmael. But what they had done was not God's way. God's plan was not going to depend on human schemes or human wisdom. God's plan was to do a miracle. And so about 10 years later, Abraham is 99 years old. 
Sarah is coming up on, nine, on her 90th birthday. <laughs> and what happens? God visits this old couple and announces this good news to them. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. God promised them a son on his own terms and in his own time. And do you know what happened? God did exactly what he said he would do at the very time he said he would do it. God gave them the promised son, Isaac. Well, as time went on, what happened? There was conflict between Ishmael and little Isaac. So much so that Sarah wanted Abraham to just send Ishmael and Hagar away. And that was hard for Abraham to hear. Why? Because he cared about Ishmael. And by the way, so did God. You cannot read that story and miss how God cared for both Hagar and Ishmael. But do you know what God said to Abraham? He said these words, Abraham, don't be so distressed. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your seed will be called. As you read on, God ends up taking care of Ishmael and his mom too, in a very special way. But what was the point that God himself was making to Abraham? Abraham, it is through Isaac and not through Ishmael that your seed will be called. Now, I don't know how interesting or helpful that is to you, but I think this is really cool. All right, so you go back to Romans, and I realize Paul knows how to read the Bible. Okay, what is his point? God never guaranteed his special covenant blessings to every physical descendant of Abraham. God never promised that. What's his proof? I mean, just look at the verses again. Verse 7. Nor is it that all the children of Abraham are his seed. Rather, in Isaac your seed will be called. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, i.e. Ishmael, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are the ones who are counted as the seed. You see, what's the proof that not all Abraham's physical children are the seed or offspring that will get all the promises? The proof is right there in the very first two sons of Abraham. Only the promised son would get the promised blessing. The only son who would get God's blessing would be the one that God brought about in his own timing by his own power. For this is the word of promise, the text says, at the appointed time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And you know what God did back in Genesis? He did exactly what he promised. And do you know why he did that? Because he always keeps his promises. Now that is exhibit A from the Old Testament story. Story number one, the story of Isaac and Ishmael. It's a story of both of them. But Paul's not done with story time. As you can see, if you look ahead, which we're not going to look at this today much. We'll wait, we'll wait till next time. But if you look at verse 10, you can see he's going on with story time, story number two. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived. Who's Rebecca, by the way? She is the wife of Isaac. And so Paul's going to tell another story about, he's going to go another generation down, and he's going to have us look now 
at the grandsons of Abraham. Two twin boys from Isaac, conceived at the same time, carried in the same womb. He's going to take us to Jacob and Esau. And say, I want you to look at those two sons, those two physical offspring of Abraham. But we're going to save that story for next time because there's no way to really get into that story and, and do it justice without like, taking more time than what we have the rest of the day. Because you'll see, I mean, if you read that, that's where a lot of the big questions in Romans 9 start coming in. When you start looking at what it says about Jacob and Esau. So you can think about that this week. But I've tried to set up like, what Paul's doing, why he's telling the stories. Now, but for this morning, there's been a lot to think about. I think we've started officially like our deep dive into, with Paul, into God's mind and plan and promises. Yet at the end of each week of this study, I want to try to come back up to the surface, take a deep breath, think about what we've seen and why it matters. So today, what are some of the things that we're supposed to take away from what we've seen? And I'm going to share three things that I've been thinking about this week. First, just generally, I think we should probably start reading our Old Testaments more. We're already seeing, and we're going to see, in Romans 9 through 11, just how much of the Old Testament was running through Paul's veins. But not just that. If you think about it, what you're seeing is how much of the Old Testament Paul expected the Roman churches to know. You ever think about that? He quotes from all over the Old Testament. I have already told you, Romans 9 through 11, one-third of all of his quotations in all of his writings are in just these three chapters. And they're from every part of the Old Testament. And he expected these Roman Christians, Gentile Christians who did not grow up like Jews did, reading the Bible, he expected them to know these scriptures. It's probably good to remind ourselves from time to time, that the early church did not have the New Testament as we have it. For example, when Phoebe brought the letter to the Romans, when she brought the letter to the Romans, it was very likely the first New Testament document they had ever seen. And yet, these churches had been around for probably 15 to 20 years how could they make it as churches without the New Testament? Well, certainly, they knew the gospel of Jesus, and they heard some of his teachings and some of the teachings of the apostles. Those were circulating orally. But what did they read? What did they study? What did they preach? They read the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. And while we are in an even better position now with the New Testament at our fingertips, just remember, having the New Testament doesn't mean we're supposed to, allowed to, we're supposed to neglect or abandon the Old Testament. As Paul might say, may it never be. Right? All scripture is inspired by God. When he said that to Timothy, what was he thinking about? Primarily, he was thinking about the Old Testament scriptures. When he said, all scripture is inspired by by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The New Testament doesn't replace the Old Testament. It builds on it, and it fulfills it. So I say, pick up the book and read the whole thing. Second, 
but more directly from our text. Okay? We need to make sure that we know what God has or has not actually promised. So much of Romans 9 through 11 is about the faithfulness of God to his promises. But where does Paul start? He starts by making sure we understand what God actually promised and what God never guaranteed. Remember that much of the reason behind these chapters is that most Jewish people had rejected Jesus or cut off from God's blessings, and that seemed to raise questions and problems in people's minds about God's faithfulness to his promises. So what does Paul emphasize from the very beginning? God never guaranteed the blessings to every physical descendant of Abraham. If you miss that, you will conclude that God has failed to keep his promises. And for us too, if we don't know what God has actually promised or what God has never actually guaranteed, we may look around at what's happening in our own lives or our own families or in our land and we may lose heart or worse. I was thinking Trish and I just the other day were talking with someone who's really nice really kind, who seemingly had followed Jesus for years, but who kept telling us she was done with Jesus now because it just didn't work. She said she would fast, she would pray, she would beg God to do things, and she just never saw the world around her become what she was begging for. Now, this was obviously very sad for us to hear this, and I certainly don't know all of the ins and outs of what had happened in her life or of what all she had even been begging God for. But as I've reflected on this conversation, one of the things I have wondered is if perhaps she had been taught along the way that God had promised to do certain things right now that perhaps God had never actually guaranteed at least not on our own timetable or in our own way. And then when things didn't turn out how she hoped, what did she conclude? She concluded God was unfaithful. Now, we could probably run a hundred directions with this about what God has or has not actually promised about our families or our health or our finances or fertility, or our church, or our jobs, or our cities. But the point is that we better make sure we know what God has actually promised us. And we also better make sure that when we tell someone else that God has promised them this, that we know what we're talking about. Yet, once we do know from Scripture what God has promised Remember this, if God has actually promised it, you can rest in that promise. And you can proclaim that to others with complete confidence because we have a God who can do anything but fail. And then lastly this morning, I hope we've seen today that ethnicity 
or privilege or physical connections to good people do not guarantee you any of God's blessings. If, this was, if that was true for the very first physical son of Abraham, how much more for us? Your ethnicity, or your claim to be connected to a really good person doesn't guarantee you anything. How much privilege you've experienced doesn't guarantee you that you're right with God or good to go with him. Same goes for having connections with other people who do know Jesus. That's not enough. I think of kids who are here. Kids, it's not enough to have a mom or a dad who knows Jesus. Men, it's not enough to have a wife who knows Jesus and prays a lot. It's not enough for us to have brothers or sisters, close friends, roommates who know Jesus well. The only connection that really matters to God is if you're personally connected to his son Jesus by faith. That's what's going to matter to God at the judgment. Are you connected to that one man, to his own son, the Christ, Jesus, who's God over everything? And this is good news because this means that you could be a complete nobody with no connections to anybody important. Perhaps, perhaps even from a family that mocked Jesus, And do you know what? That doesn't mean you're disqualified with God. Our ethnicity or privileges or connections neither qualify us nor disqualify us. What matters to God is what we do personally with his son. Will we submit to Jesus, confess him as Lord? Will we throw in our lot with that man? That's the only connection that will matter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these words. You know, we're going into this study, just working through these texts, trying to grasp your mind, thinking carefully about your promises. Lord, I pray that you will do a a great work in us through this study. Pray that you'll give us greater understanding of your promises, greater confidence in you, the God who never lies. And I pray that through this, we will grow to see in a a new way your grace and how important it is for us to be connected to Jesus. He is our only hope. I pray that we'll all see that today, the young and the old. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.